Well, gentlemen, good to see you. We're uh, in, uh, thank you, chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we're nearing the end of this study. The, um, as you know, the chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the longest treatment of the uh, resurrection in the Bible. And it is, um, it is one of the most, I think, important uh, passages in, in the New Testament. Uh, but let's let me start with um, a question or two. Now we have covered some of this, but I want to remind you uh, through these questions of how important this is. We just celebrated uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus this past weekend, as you know. Here's my question: um, Why is the resurrection so important? All right, it certainly is uh, very importantly a fulfillment of uh, prophetic uh, material that's all through the Old Testament. Good. Okay. So the cross, where he dies on the cross, uh, we studied that a couple of weeks ago. Christ died for our sins. That little preposition there is instead of, in place of. It's the idea of substitution. Why isn't that enough, though? Because it says he died for our sins. He's on the cross shedding his blood in our place. Why is the resurrection needed? It does validate who he is, but why is it needed? Because without his resurrection, he didn't really overcome. He paid the price for my sins, but he didn't overcome that and prove that he was God. Okay, okay, you, you almost said it. You're, you're right. I mean, everybody's in the ballpark. You're somewhere between third base and home. Uh, it's just he, over, he overcame the price for our sins, but he also overcame the another P word penalty for my sin because remember uh, the Lord said this to Adam and Eve in Genesis uh, chapter 2 the day that you sin you will die and death has two facets to it there's spiritual death which is separation from God and that's what Adam and Eve tragically experienced and then there's the physical aspect of death which is the separation of the body and the soul the resurrection is the rejoining of the body and the soul. But Jesus paid the penalty of, uh, of dying on the cross for our sins and paid the penalty. He died. His resurrection shows that the penalty's been paid. Death no longer has authority over us. He's going to write, I don't, we'll probably get to that today, but it's right at the end of the chapter. Paul's almost taunting Satan here. He says, Oh, death, where is thy victory? Where, where, where is thy sting? That's, a, that's almost a taunt because it's gone. I mean, you and I don't, I don't think we necessarily look forward to the event of death, but we have the certainty that when that day comes, we claim what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we grab the second promise he makes that in John 14 he says, I'm coming back for you. 
And First Thess 4, 4 tells us that when he comes back for us, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture, but we caught up to be with the Lord. And he's going to tell us here in this, we're going to probably get to that today, that in the, in the twinkling of an eye at that time when Christ comes back, we will be changed, we'll be transformed. And this morning what I want to talk about is what is that transformation? What is our new body going to look like? And so that's what Paul is describing here. So it's just, it's just to make sure that, um, and you know this, and I know everybody in the room knows this, but it's just to review how central the resurrection is. If there is no resurrection, we shouldn't meet. We really shouldn't. We're wasting our time. If there's no resurrection, if Jesus' resurrection is a lie, then we shouldn't go to church on Sunday. That doesn't make sense. We're believing something, we're, we're going through the motions, and there's no power, there's no significance to it, because Christ is still in the grave. He's still rotting somewhere over there in Jerusalem. But that's not true. And so he, 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 Apostle Paul has established that. <clears throat> and we looked at the three major ways in which he does it. And now in verse 35, he poses and answers two additional questions. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body did they come? Verse so, 35 of, of 1 Corinthians 15. 15. You bet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So you have two questions here, and he answers the, first, the second one first. And in your notes, I, what I did on page t- uh, 23 of your notes, I, I just went through and just itemized all the aspects of how he answers us. And it's a very instructive se- section of Scripture. But um, so he's, he's now shifting from all of the proofs and the arguments and the evidence, the fulfillment of prophecy and everything that the resurrection brings about in the first 34, verse, 34 verses. Now he asks and answers these two questions. So the first one is, well, what's the nature of the body when it's resurrected? Excuse me, 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, to each of the seeds a body of its own. Um, That is not necessarily clear in the New American Standard, which from which I'm reading. But if you can think of one word, continuity. There's continuity between what is sown, dies, and what it comes back to life as. And he uses the example of a piece of grain, like a piece of corn or a wheat. Now, if and it, this is figurative, but th- just think about this for a minute. It's not that difficult. In order for that little grain of wheat to become a stalk of wheat that bears great fruit, what must happen to it? It must be buried. It must die. But that which is placed in the ground dies, has significant continuity, and is necessary before it flowers into a full stalk of wheat. Same with a kernel of corn. Same with a a bean. 
It's going to produce soybean. Do you see? That's all he's saying there. It's, it's kind of wordy, but he's just saying, you're, you think in the natural realm, that's the way it is. You take a kernel of grain, you put it in the ground, it dies, you bury it, and it comes to life. So he wants us to think, he wants us to think that there is a continuity between the body that is put in the ground and the body that's going to come to life again. Just like you put a kernel of wheat in the ground, there's continuity between that kernel and the huge stalk of wheat that's going to result several months later. That's all he's doing. Does that make sense? But, verse 39 through 49, really, there's significant discontinuity. There's similarity, but there's difference. There's similarity between the body that goes into the ground and the body that's resurrected. Now, from that, when when Woody and I, a thousand years from now, when Woody and I see one another in a new heaven and a new earth, I'll recognize him because there's continuity between his body now and his body will be resurrected. I don't think he'll recognize me because I'm going to really look different because I'm so old now I can't imagine how much I'm going to change as I continue to deteriorate I'm just kidding uh, but you know it it's just stating something that is very very simple to understand but verse 39 and following there's great difference now if you look at your notes just to follow what he's saying here all flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, of birds, fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Glory of, of the heavenly is one, glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory for the sun, another for the moon, another for stars. Star differs from star. So also is resurrection from the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable body. Imperishable body. What does perishable mean? That's the way the New American Standard. What does perishable mean? Biodegradable. Okay. <laughs> it's biodegradable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just going to perish. They tell us that when you reach about 19 years old, from then on, you're just going downhill. What's imperishable mean? Superman. It'll always be constant. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's not going to deteriorate. It's not going to be biodegradable, which was Woody's clever way of putting it. In other words, and I think this is another way of thinking about this, it will not be subject to change. It's not going to grow older. It's not going to t- deteriorate. It's, it's, it's going to be... Um, and this is going to be developed, it's going to be a perfect human body. What was Adam and Eve's body like before Genesis 3? It was it, Presumably, it was glorified, it was perfect, there was nothing wrong with it. Um, Pure. But when sin occurred, immediately... That separation from God, the break in the fellowship occurred, but then the deterioration started. But what age is that body going to be? <laughs> in other words, we have babies dying. Yeah. 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 I think, and that is, in one sense, Daryl, that is an unanswerable question. 
because the Bible does not clarify that. However, as many have suggested, and I think there's some just reasonableness to this, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them as adults. You follow what I mean? It tells us in Genesis that he created them, male and female he created them, and when he gives the account of Adam and then he gives the account of the creation of Eve in Genesis 2, they're created as adults. So it, it would seem reasonable to infer that, I, I'm going to, uh, in, in one sense, bear my soul here, but if you believe that life is in conception, then there are an awful lot of babies in heaven right now. which means through abortion and miscarriages and all of the things that can happen. But in, in America, it's 54 million abortions since 1973. That means, if we understand it correctly, that's 54 million humans that are in heaven. And so it would seem that they will be, they will be in heaven as adults in the new kingdom, in the resurrected uh, body. And that's an inference, but that seems reasonable to me. Because, again, how did God create Adam and Eve? He didn't create him as an embryo. He created him as an adult, as a functioning adult, if, if that makes sense to see it that way. And it's just, um, it's, it's, it's an amazing thought. Because all of us, I mean, I, I'm pretty close to being the oldest, if not the oldest in the room. And, you know, we, I've lived the, the biggest part of my life, and I'm starting to feel just being almost 67 years old. My, my, ankle, my knee aches. If I'm out working in the yard like I was uh, a little bit this weekend, you know, I just I feel it. And I used to never feel it. Why? Because my body is perishable. And the older we get, the more we sense that. The Bible says your resurrected body will be imperishable. And I also, this doesn't have anything to do with this chapter, but I also think we're going to be extremely busy serving the Lord in the, new ki- in the kingdom and in the new heaven, new earth. We're going to be very active. And, but we'll never get tired. We're not going to get weary. There are no tears in heaven. There's no pain. Uh, my father, who's 89, uh, not in real good health, but he loves Tennessee Ernie Ford. Do any of you know who he is? Okay. Huh? Tennessee Ernie Ford, I know Dave, he's a, he's a real old singer. I mean, he's re- gospel, kind of a gospel kind of singer of many years ago. He used to sing a song, No Tears in Heaven, one of my dad's favorite songs. But it's just that kind of, um, that kind of image that's created of what imperishable means. That's, that's, we don't have a category for understanding that. Because everything, everything in our world changes and deteriorates. It just does. Everything does. Flowers do. Plants do. Trees do. Humans do. Animals do. But not in the new world God's creating. Jim, can I ask you a question? I say our loved ones have already gone before us that are in heaven. So there's, there's no tears. So they won't be able to look back on their life from heaven and say... Because I would say, if they look back, there would be tears, you know, with their loved ones and things. I mean, I, th- I thought I was reading some more was in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, so there's no, there's not, you're not going to remember anything before or something like that. Maybe I was wrong with that, but w- what's your thought about that? <clears throat> um, 
there's I think that I'm trying to not make this a really long bunny trail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we should understand that to, to a certain extent in kind of a continuum or like in stages. Let me explain what I mean. <clears throat> First of all, remember that if, if you have loved ones who died in Christ, they're in heaven with the Lord Jesus uh, and everyone else as a soul waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back. The Bible does speak, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 is probably the best place to start thinking about that, that there's, at, there's, there's going to be a time when we all stand as believers before the judgment seat of Jesus, the babe, not for salvation, that's settled. And it, it would seem then that as a part of there is still memory. I mean, there's memory of what the past was like because Jesus is evaluating how we lived for him after we, we, we put our faith in him. So memory is still there, it seems. But then in, in the resurrected glorified body and in the kingdom of Christ and in the new heaven and new earth which will follow that, it does seem as if memory of the past is not going to be a part of that. So, I mean, I can't explain exactly what that's going to mean and how God's going to do that. But it seems contrary to everything we understand that we're going to be remembering all of the things of our past life where we failed the Lord, or we did this or that, or whatever it was. That doesn't, that doesn't seem consistent with, with the way uh, the descriptions are, are laid out in Scripture. So um, I don't know if once the Bama seat is over, memory of the past is taken care of. God erases that digital file on our mind. I just don't know. We're in an area we have, we draw some inferences based on what we do know to answer a question like that. The Bible does not specifically say God will delete all memory of past failures. You do have the sense for Paul. He tells us this in Philippians. Now that is not exactly an answer to your question, but in his in his life, which would involve his uh, salvation and walking with the Lord after he met him on the Damascus Road. He put everything in his past behind him. He didn't look back anymore. He just looked forward, pressing on, you know, that wonderful language he uses. So that's just, that's a very long answer to your question, but I think that it's about the only way in which we can approach a question like that, it seems to me. Second, second is in, in the middle of verse 43, it is sown in weakness, but raised in power. Now again, he's using the, image of you take a grain, put it in the ground, it nice to die, and so on. So it's sown. It's sown in weakness. Well, it is. My goodness. There's no greater evidence of weakness than death and all the causes of it. But it's raised in power. You can see the contrast that he's setting up. Number uh, uh, Next is in, in verse 44. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And what does that mean? Well, he explains it. Now, now listen as he explains it. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth. The second man is from heaven. And so what is he saying there? Um, 
when he when he uses the word natural body and contrasts it with spiritual body, what he means by that is a supernatural body. Spiritual body doesn't mean we're just some ethereal spirit. Do you know what I mean by that? There will be a physical dimension to who we are. Or, as this is a very unusual way to put it, but we are and will be a soul body unit, or soul slash spirit body unit, however you think about that. That's, that. So that's a supernatural entity to it. Because natural, whenever that word is not, whenever that word natural is used in the scriptures, it always means a body that will sin. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, uh, I believe it is verse 14, Paul talks of the natural man, the man who doesn't have the spirit, the the man who is condemned to sin. That's what he means. It's a natural body. It will sin. But it's raised a spiritual body, a supernatural body. It will not sin. And he's, he, he connects that with Adam, the first man, sin. The second Adam is the life-giving spirit. Life-giving spirit. What kind of life? The spiritual life. That is supernatural. And so it's, um, it's, 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 a, it's an explanation of natural versus supernatural. And supernatural, not in the sense that we become God, that's not what it means, but no longer subject to all of the forces and powers of being a natural man, which again in the New Testament means a human being who will sin. It would be natural to sin. That's right, where it's natural it's to unexpected. sin. That's right. That's right. That's sin. part of who we are. But in heaven, well, I shouldn't say in heaven because we will populate the new, new heaven and the new earth. But in the coming kingdom of Christ and, and the new heaven and new earth that follows, we will not be capable of sinning. I can't imagine that, can you? That's an unimaginable thought to me. To, 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 to live now, I daily, as all of you do, I daily struggle with my thought life, my emotions, my attitudes, my actions. When I get my new body, that won't be there anymore. No more evil thoughts, no more temptations, no more motivation checks, no more attitude checks, no more behavioral checks. That's, we just have no category for thinking about that. But that's what, that's what he's trying to use human language to describe what this, this new body's going to look like. And it's just, uh, I mean, it's just, it's so awesome. It's, it gets back to something he said earlier in this book in chapter 10. Eye has not seen, ears not heard, nor the mind of man has not conceived all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, because Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very it's going to be uh 
another unusual aspect of of the of the coming kingdom as well. You're right. So he's he's he says finally then that um, the the body that goes into grave is earthly, but the one that we will get in the new heaven uh, or when Christ comes back for the kingdom and then populating new heaven new earth is heavenly. There are also those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And um, think about that for a minute. Again, why he chooses to use some of these phrases, I, I, I don't know. I wish sometimes the Holy Spirit would have tapped him on the shoulder and said, make this a little simpler. But the Spirit inspired this. But remember, image... The, the, the word image is icon in Greek. We get our word icon from that in English. What's the icon of the heavenly in terms of a body? What's the image of the heavenly in terms of a body? <coughs> Jesus. The body of Jesus in his resurrection is the body that we will receive. Now, I don't mean we'll get his body, but one like his. As he says uh, earlier in this chapter, Jesus is the first fruit of all those who will, who will be resurrected. And so we, the, the icon, the image that we have now is an earthly, perishable, um, weak, natural body. When Christ uh, calls us up, the dead in Christ rise first, and we are alive to be with him, our, our changed body will be not uh, uh, weak, but it'll be glorified. It'll be in power. It'll be supernatural, and it will have the image of the heavenly. It will have the exact type of body Jesus has now, which, again, if you want to use one word that captures it all, it's supernatural. So, I mean, it's just... It's just uh, these are words, these are phrases, these are characteristics, and I've tried to itemize them in your notes, but they will, they will just be absolutely spectacularly majestic. A glorified, resurrected, imperishable, powerful, supernatural body that resembles that of Jesus. That long, convoluted sentence is what he's just told us in these verses from 35 through 49. So, will there be pain in heaven? Uh, let me rephrase that. Will there be pain in our new glorified bodies? No. Will Woody need any surgery? No. This is one of the things I, I kind of delight in thinking about. Will we need to exercise? <laughs> I don't know. We're going to be busy, but maybe we'll be so busy and active that we won't need exercise. I, I don't know. You know, Dave, I see him every now and working out. Um, one of the issues that is really interesting is, will we eat? Apparently, yes. Did Jesus eat in his resurrected body? The, I mean, he, there are two accounts where he ate something. He was preparing a meal. Um, will we have coffee? which is a very relevant question. I mean, it's one of those, I don't know if you've ever, um, I'm going a little bit beyond the text here, but Randy Alcorn, who's one of my favorite writers, 
Randy Alcorn, on, several years ago, wrote a book called Heaven. My wife and I read that together about three years, almost three years ago now. That was one of, that was one of the most delightful things we've ever done. Because what he does in the first part of the book, it's very theological. He takes you through all of the material in Scripture and draws the theological implications. And then the second third of the book, he tries to deal with very practical aspects of this doctrine, why it's important to us. And then the third part of the book is, is kind of the fun part, at least I found it fun. He poses a whole host of questions. And he stresses particularly, which I think he's right, the Bible doesn't just speak of heaven. It always speaks of the new heaven and new earth, which is our destiny. And so it's appropriate asking questions like, will we eat? Will we drink coffee? Will there be animals? Will there be flowers? And, 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 you know, the answer to those, some of those questions, you cannot go directly to a verse that says, yes, there will be coffee brewing in heaven. But the new heaven and the new earth. Will there be flowers? Yes. That doesn't seem unreasonable. Because sometimes this comes more out of the medieval church when they're trying to paint paintings on the churches because people were mainly uh, illiterate. The appearance of angels, you know, that humans become like angels and we float around heaven with wings playing harps. That's One, that's not biblical. Two, there is nothing in Scripture that indicates that's what we're going to look like. And what we just described, we don't become angels. Contrary to It's a Wonderful Life, remember Clarence, who's trying to get his wings, remember all that crazy stuff. But instead, we're going to be populating after the millennial kingdom of Christ ends, and as in the words of this, this chapter, Christ delivers the kingdom up to his Father, new heaven and new earth begins. It's the new heaven and the new earth. So will there be bushes and trees will we be growing food will we be enjoying food well some of that it's just it's, it just seems reasonable if the new earth as well as the new heaven yes which is kind of a fun delightful thing to think about so if there are going to be flowers and plants and vegetables will there be weeds no no which is really, so I mean, we're going beyond, <laughs> we're going beyond 1 Corinthians 15, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's an awesome, unimaginable, delightful, stunning, staggering set of teachings to just a little bit let your mind and imagination go, thinking of what it will be like, no sin, no weeds, no pain, no tears, and walking with God. Mm. Well, then he asks and answers this question. When's this going to occur? When will the resurrection occur? Verse 50, he begins to answer that question. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay, now that makes sense. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, remember, we've talked about this quite a few times in this book. 
Mystery means something that is now being revealed. It was hidden, but it's now revealed. Now, this is not new truth, but he's adding to things he's taught. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised, imperishable. Takes you back to verse 42. And this mortal must put on immortality. Meaning, the glorified, resurrected body is immortal. It will never die. It will never perish. Now, I want you to turn over for a moment with me to 1 Thessalonians. You just go right in your Bible and just keep turning till you get to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. <clears throat> because the parallel passage to verse 51 and 52 is 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. <clears throat> I want to begin in verse 13, and I want to read through verse 18. Brethren, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, I think you know this, but let me remind you. In the New Testament, sleep is used as a figure of speech for dead. It tells us in Acts 7, when Stephen died, he fell asleep. Okay? that we may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive shall rem- and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. What do we do with that truth? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, if you can, if you followed me, if you take 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52, and 53 and combine it with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, they're teaching the same thing. They complement one another. They give you a little more detail. So when will our bodies be changed? In a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. What trumpet? The trumpet that's mentioned in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4. In other words, it's it's taught it or I should say he because he wrote both of these Paul is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling his promise in John 14 when he said to his disciples guys I'm going back to the father but I will come back for you the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the God Father the Lord Jesus Christ is waiting for the father to say Son, go get your church. Go get your bride, which is the language of Revelation. That's, that's the next event in God's program. That's the, there's nothing else that has to happen. 
the redemptive plan of God is complete. Death, burial, and resurrection is complete. Jesus is going back to the Father. The Holy Spirit's come. The next event is God says, go get your church. And when, what we just read in First Thess 4 and, and what is referred to in, in 15 of First Corinthians is what will happen. Because did you notice in verse 17, meet the Lord in the air. This isn't Jesus coming back to earth. This isn't the second coming. This is Christ coming for his church. And the dead in Christ rise first, okay? Who are the dead in Christ? All of those that have trusted Christ since April the 3rd, A.D. 33. That's over 2,000 years. We're waiting. We're waiting. And one of the questions that I've been asked, maybe you've been asked, the Apostle Peter says in his epistle, many are going to ask that. You believe he's coming back? That's silly. It's been so long. I mean, for us, it's been you know, nearly 2,000 years, and that is, if the Lord's come back, why is he waiting so long? Peter says, the answer to that question is, these are the, these are, this is my paraphrase, God is interested in increasing the population of heaven. That's why he waits. And that he waits is an act of his grace. Now, the, the apostles apparently believed that, Je Paul certainly seemed to have that sense, that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. Well, he didn't. Paul died in AD 68. But we're still waiting. Does that mean because we're still waiting and it's been about 2,000 years or so that he's not coming back? No, that's not what it means. You and I have, the, at least I hope you do, we should have the certainty that Christ is coming back. And if all of us around this table, it could be this afternoon when we're headed to the next appointment or whatever you're going to do this afternoon, it could be this, it could be this afternoon that Jesus comes back for us. Or it could be next week or next year. It could be a hundred years from now. You know, that's up to the Lord. But this teaches us what will happen. The shout of the archangel, the, the, vo the vo shout, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and boom, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up. That's what he is talking about here in First Thess excuse me, First Corinthians fifteen is complemented by the details of First Thess 4, and it'll occur in the twinkling of an eye. Now they tell me that is faster than a jiffy, and a jiffy is one one-hundredth of a second. I, just, I mean, when you start talking, like, I don't even know what that means, but it's going to be just so quick. We'll be uh, changed. Me, is that what it's referred to as the rapture? That's correct. Mm -hmm. That's the event of the rapture. And, I mean, people say, well, I don't believe in the rapture. You can't say that. You don't believe in the rapture. That's taught. It's just the issue and controversy is always the timing. When does it occur? But that's what it, it is exactly what it's describing, Woody. Yeah, Darrell. I don't know that, but it's exciting to think that I'm caught, and of course I can do anything. But it happens with all these people who have died in Christ. Yes. At the same time. That's exactly right. One by one. Yeah, yeah. You raised, a, you raised a big question in my mind when you gave a date. I've never thought of that before. Uh, as far as those being raptured or those who have died in Christ. Yes. What about those who died? Um, Abraham. For yes, example. the Old Testament saints. Yeah. He, he's not going to be raised. So I always thought all those 
It doesn't, uh, not at this point, not at this point, because it's very, First Thess is very specific, in Christ, those who have died in Christ. Abraham didn't die in Christ. Um, it, um, <laughs> there is a little bit of discussion on when do the Old Testament saints, uh, uh, when does the Lord re- resurrect them? The discussion is usually, does he resurrect them at the beginning of the millennial kingdom or at the end of the millennial kingdom? Um, And you can find uh, good scholarship on both of those uh, areas. Um, Ezekiel um, uh, 37 seems to tell us that David will be resurrected and will rule as vice-regent with Jesus in Jerusalem during the thousand-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And some say, well, if David's brought back to life, then why wouldn't other Old Testament saints? <coughs> That's why there is that. So, Darrow, it's either before the millennial kingdom begins or at the end of the millennial kingdom, the and Old then, Testament. And then you have the two witnesses during the tribulation. R- right, right. That's, that's yes. I mean, there just there are a number of resurrection events throughout, and then there is no doubt about this. Revelation twenty uh, details for us that all of the unrighteous are resurrected, and that's for only one purpose: the great white throne. That's the only reason they're resurrected, because then they are judged and and condemned. But um, anyway, so. There is, there's just some discussion about that because the, the scripture is not, the scriptures are not real clear that they will be resurrected is, is clear, but it doesn't seem like they're resurrected with the church because they're not a part of that. It's those who have died in Christ. That seems to be very clear there. So anyway, yes, David. Oh, you're just stretching. Just okay. <laughs> okay. Let me conclude this with verse 54 and following. So he's drawing the threads together now. He's bringing his discussion, and it's, this is a wonderful, wonderful passage. Verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, mortal will put on the immortality, then will come about what the saying that is written, this is from Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory. And he quotes Hosea Another minor prophet. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And as I said, these, these are almost taunts. The, the language of these questions is almost a taunt. Because the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul makes clear in the argument in several chapters in the book of Romans, when we place our faith in Christ because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, death no longer has authority over us. Sin no longer has authority over us. The law no no longer has authority over us. We are victors. We are victorious in Christ. And that's, um, that is, that is so central to the theology of the Bible. Death is the penalty for sin. 
Christ substitutionarily died on the cross for us and shed his blood. And his victory over death, which means the resurrection, means that the penalty is gone. The power of that is gone. The authority of that in our life is gone. We no longer fear death because of Christ. So we're now a part of that victorious horde. That's maybe not the best way to put it. The victorious um, n- number of people that uh, he, is, he is going to take uh, to, to heaven with him. And it's a, it's a glorious thought, but it's, and I, I think we maybe have talked about this briefly before, but if you've ever been with someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're with them when they die, there's a difference. Then with the, I've been with both, a person who's a believer and a person who's an unbeliever. There's a real difference there. Well, I mean, the the believer is there's usually, uh, especially if you know if they've been sick for a while or they're uh, they're they're older and their their bodies are just beginning to shut down. There's just a, a restful peace and, and consolation. I'm going to be with Jesus. There's a settledness about that. Whereas an unbeliever, it's often just the opposite. There's there's almost an agony and a fighting, and that that's one of the greatest moments to say. Let's talk about Jesus. <laughs> it's not too late. As long as you're taking a breath, you know. I remember uh, the very last minutes of a man's life, he put his faith in Christ. He was just fighting it. And it's just, you think, why do you keep fighting him in your deathbed? He's fighting it. And the best way to describe what happened to him is he gave up. Okay, I'll trust in Jesus. And this amazing smile over this man's face, it was absolutely unbelievable. It isn't always like that. I mean, I, I didn't mean those to be absolutes. But generally speaking, for a believer, there's just a settledness. Because, I mean, when death is imminent, you, you just, you, you, okay, it's time to go home. When my wife uh, really would be her great aunt, but uh, yeah, we called her aunt. But when she passed away a few years ago, um, those last three or four days, she, she was she was very sick, and she was, she was a bit of an elderly lady, and just the various parts of her body were shutting down. She just kept saying, "I just want to go home," and that's you know that's, that's a great way to put it because the scriptures say that this is not our home; our home is with the Lord. And uh, there's just that a person who doesn't know Christ doesn't approach death that way. And it's because of what Paul's saying here. Death has no victory over us anymore. There's no authority or power over us because of Christ. All right. So what do we do with this truth? The last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And it's it's a causal participle because you know that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because of eternity, because of the truth of the resurrected, glorified body, because victory uh, of Christ has, has forever rendered death no longer powerful and authoritative in our life. We're steadfast. We're immovable. Because we know the truth. The doctrine of the resurrection should change your life. Not only change your life in terms of you've trusted Christ, the new nature, but it should change how you live. 
And that's what he is. He's almost pleading with the Corinthians that the truth that they have embraced and they believe, let it now be a part of the transformational work of God in your life. It should cause you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work and service of the Lord. All right. We have covered now the longest chapter in Paul's writings. Shall we take a quiz on it? No, we don't want to do that, do we? Any any questions or, or final thoughts? Uh, because next, I want to say a few things about chapter 16, but we're not going to spend a great deal of time on that. We'll start Ecclesiastes next week, and I'll have all the stuff to you get us. That, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the greatest chapter as far as the literal resurrection Absolutely. of our Lord. Absolutely. When you include verse 58 in there as well, it almost is probably the best chapter on the perspective that we should have That's right. of life itself. That's right. No, it's, it's, That's right. It's a strain. Sometimes it's a disappointment. That's right. But the best is yet to come. That's exactly right. That's right. And it's that, th- th- this, this truth, by this I mean the chapter uh, of 15, this truth is the basis of our hope. Yes, sir. And hope, as the biblical word of, of hope is used, is focused on Christ, not circumstances. Not the emotional roller coaster, <clears throat> coaster, but it's it's Christ and His His promise He's coming back for us because the best is yet to come. Absolutely. Uh, I, I my dad is eighty nine and he's not well at all. He's he's he really he, can, he really can hardly walk and it's it's really quite sad because I, I most of my life I knew my dad as a strong. He was in the construction industry and. He was in the Navy during World War II. I mean, he just, there was nothing my dad couldn't do. He was a very strong man. Now, my dad, about the only thing my dad can do by himself is eat. He just doesn't, he can't walk by himself. I mean, it's just, a, but that's just the deterioration of the body. And when the last time I was with my dad, he started, he started to talk. I'm getting to the point where I just want to go home. And I'll see him here in about a month, over a month and a half. And uh, actually, it's almost two months, but... Uh, it, I know, I know what you're going to talk about. It, it's that's. It's almost like as the older we get, chronologically, and the less and less we can do, the more we really focus on the promises that God's made to us. Because my dad's life is largely over, and for all of us, tomorrow, our life might be over. But when, especially with someone that God allows to live um, a long, full life, <clears throat> those last weeks, months, years, the focus more and more is on eternity. Because you know that just your, your life now, in this phase of, of your life, because I think it's just phase one, phase two is, is, is with the Lord. Um, it's, it's to have a, have a life that's full and rich in service to the Lord. But as that phase is coming to an end, you start really, really looking forward to the next phase. That's my dad. That's where my dad is. He's just, his focus is pretty much on the next phase of life, which is going to be with the Lord. And that's good. That's a good thing. I mean, that's that's not a bad thing. It's sad for us, 
But that's the good thing, because that's the promise. Death no longer has authority over us. Our, our death in this life is just the beginning of the next phase of what God has for us. And that's all because of what Jesus did. So, Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time around uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Um, what an appropriate passage to look at and study these last couple of weeks, right around Easter in our, in our calendar year this year. Uh, that's uh, perhaps not by your coincidence. It was perhaps by your design. We will accept that and just rejoice in that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promised resurrection of all of us who have put our faith in him and all of those throughout the world and through all of human history the last 2,000 years that have put their faith in Christ. This chapter is a chapter of encouragement, a chapter of comfort, a chapter, chapter of grand truth, doctrinal certainty, but perhaps more than anything else, it gives us hope. Um, I think it was Darrow who said, it, it teaches us that the best is yet to come. Our life on this earth is rich, it's important, it's a gift. We've come, to a, come into a relationship with you, but it's only phase one of our life. Phase two is in the glorified, resurrected body that promised. And as we populate the kingdom of Christ and in the new heaven and new earth, things that are so difficult for us to even grasp or imagine, that's part of the promise of what you've made to us. So, Father, we trust you with this. You've made a lot of promises to us. We believe you're going to keep them. That's what gives us the certainty and the hope to keep going. Help these men in all they do and say to really represent you well. We're grateful for each one. We're thankful that Woody is able to be back with us. Lord, just take care of him, watch over him each day, help to continue to rebuild his strength. And we are grateful for uh, the richness of fellowship with joy with uh, one another, and especially, again, that Woody's able to join us. So we commit him to you and continue to just lift him up to you. For the rest of us and what we do the rest of this day and this week, enable us, dear Lord, enable us to represent you well. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. See you next week.